Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, returning guest and longtime friend, Lee Edwards of Root. Uh, Lee, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. So the first time we talked, uh, we had you, we talked D2C with Nicole Quinn. Last time we talked uh, hard tech with uh, Trey Vassallo. And today we are here to talk about uh, higher education. Uh, so before we get into what's happening uh, in, in higher education, the age of, of COVID, first I want to ask, um, what got you so excited about, about this topic? Why don't you trace your intellectual journey a little bit? Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I was in high school, Olin College was uh, in its first year they were just starting the college and the whole value prop, like the, the thing they sent out um, to all the students for marketing material was like, help us build this college. We're trying to do things differently. And like that message really resonated with me. I think it's like a kid with, I don't know, like a kind of a mixed, uh, mixed background in high school. I tended to like, not really like the kind of lecture format of things and the memorization and tests and stuff like that. And kind of did a lot better in classes where I was getting my hands dirty and kind of like actually being a little more self-guided. So that's, I ended up not getting in the first year and then getting into Olin when I reapplied. And it's a college that is constantly kind of like investigating or kind of like um, prodding itself and trying to figure out how to do things differently, how to improve things and actually like co-developing courses, um, especially in those early years. So you kind of can't help but go to Olin and then come out having spent a lot of time thinking about education and like what's what works and what doesn't, or at least your opinions of those things. So it's just kind of been like a, an interest of mine since then. And, and before you went down this sort of deep rabbit hole of sort of post you know, COVID what's happening pre COVID, what were your opinions of, of what needed to change or what, what was messed up or what was working? Yeah. So like every sentence I say in this, we should, uh, we should like pretend there's a caveat that says like, this is not the opinion of Olin College of Engineering. <laughs> and I don't even know if they'll be upset that I'm doing this without talking to them. We'll see. But I do think particularly with engineering, and this is kind of even more true like 10, 15, 20 years ago, just a lot of focus on math and science and like fundamentals, which are really useful for certain kinds of applications of engineering. I mean, I think if you're going into like aerospace, there is just a ton of math and physics and you're typically going to end up with a PhD before you start building, you know, and, uh, you know, turbines for airplanes. But for a lot of other folks, like people that are writing software, even just like people building consumer hardware stuff or electronics, like, honestly, a lot of people are self-taught. I know some, we all know, like very impressive software engineers that, you know, went to school for music or philosophy, um, or didn't go to college. And, and I actually have even met people like in electrical engineering that never studied that stuff formally, who are really amazing. And so it feels like there's a disconnect there, right? Like, is college really serving people by delaying how long they, until they get their hands on things? Like so many mechanical engineering undergrad degrees, you don't get to go into the shop like until near the end. 
sometimes because of size, sometimes because of level of risk tolerance. So, and But mostly I think just because the curriculum doesn't mandate it. They're like, no, take a bunch of thermo, take statics, take dynamics, and then, oh, learn how to cut some metal? Like, sure, that's an elective. And you're like, really? Are you going to be a mechanical engineer without knowing how to actually fabricate? That's one. And then I guess there's a whole other set of hot takes that are sort of more political around like, well, on one side of the spectrum, I, I, I definitely believe in kind of the access and equity in education. Like, you know, we're seeing a lot, there are lots and lots of loans and scholarships, need-based scholarships out there that are available, but I still don't think it's enough. It's still clear that we have a very stratified class structure in this country. And part of that is about opportunity and access to education really at all levels. And then I think the other side of the spectrum, I can buy their argument around groupthink of higher education often, the sort of like ivory tower walled garden-ness of it. And some of the criticisms about tenure, which Olin doesn't have tenure. And that was kind of one of the original precepts. So that's interesting. What are the trade-offs of, of not having tenure? A Tyler Cowan has long said that they should, you know, we should get rid of tenure. It keeps people lazy or not innovating or <laughs> what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think the original impetus behind tenure is a good one, which is sort of, you think about like the original higher education institutions, they were supposed to be these sort of like ivory tower in a good way, kind of like bastions of knowledge and um, trying to make them resistant to the swings in politics. I think ironically, the idea of professors not being able to be canceled in kind of the 2020 definition of the word canceled. And now we're seeing that kind of reverse. But originally the idea being like, yeah, so you want to study the 1950s in America and you want to study and teach socialist economic theory, you're tenured, you can't really get fired. You can get yelled at constantly, but you can't get fired. And I think that's a good thing. But on the other hand, like the idea behind Olin is it's a very teaching centric college. And I do think that if you stop caring about teaching, if it's just sort of reviewed and, and sort of, you know, if there's sort of this objective conclusion that you're not performing as an instructor or as a teacher, there should be ways to sort of do performance reviews and bring in someone else who's sort of better, more passionate, more effective in that environment. So I think, you know, it depends on the, depends on the institution, I guess, and kind of what their goals are. Let's get into what's happening now. It's, it's, I'm guessing that because you're on the board of, of institution, you're more of an incrementalist than I am when I say, you know, burn it yeah. all down. <laughs> <laughs> and this, I think sort of COVID is the perfect opportunity for that because people are, because, because people can't be physically on campus, they're paying a lot of money for an online education that they can elsewhere get for free or much cheaper. And so they're realizing it really is about the credential or about the network, which they can also get in other ways because they're not on campus. And uh, this is, you know, hitting college, colleges' budgets uh, left and right. And so w- w- what does that mean, Lee? You've looked at this from a much more nuanced perspective. What, what's happening? Yeah. So, I mean, I think in the very immediate term, clearly what's happening is campus is being shut down. Um, folks that I've been talking to at Olin and elsewhere are sort of expecting or at least preparing for a semester or two um, being shut down. It seems like a lot of folks are preparing for that. I think part of that is just colleges are sort of by their nature a little more conservative and risk averse. They kind of have to be, right? They're taking like your they're taking your 18-year-old kids and being responsible for their lives and um you know, it would be a huge problem like just in terms of like human life and also financial liability um and brand hit if there were an outbreak at a college. So I expect them to be a little more conservative than most places. So yeah, like inevitably what they're doing is going online and what's 
kind of interesting is there are a lot of schools that have been doing online education for a long time. And sometimes their online education is, a lot of them I, I think is actually quite good. I've taken some Stanford online courses that, that were actually really awesome and clearly very custom built for the curricula they were teaching. Others are sort of being forced online and having to figure it out. Um, and then others sort of their online education is kind of like a moneymaker and a second class citizen within the school. So I think that a lot of colleges are also aware of the fact that not everyone is sort of uh, down for paying higher education level prices for a webinar. And what's really interesting is with that release of online content and actually why Combinator has been doing the same thing, where they basically say, our experience is so valuable, the network that you build in person and just the experience of being immersed and being around other people is so valuable that we'll give the content away for free because it's not about the content. And now, <laughs> now they're saying, actually, you should pay us 30 grand a year for the content. And uh, so it's kind of an interesting incongruency in my mind. And uh, Olin is in an interesting place where we've sort of always said that the content is novel and the courses we're teaching are not taught anywhere else. And most of them are hard to do online. And there are certain things that, you know, you can't, you, you can teach calculus online over a webinar. You can probably exit that class and know how to do calculus. It may be less fun for you, but then there are certain things that you can't do online, like machine shop, or maybe you could send people a drill press and, and hope they don't get hurt at home. <laughs> but um, so I think that everyone that I've talked to in higher education, again, at Olin and elsewhere is definitely aware of that risk. And they also worry about deferments uh, as a result. If you're graduating high school right now, are you thinking about, you know, should I defer a year, take a gap year, um, and then come back when classes are on campus again? I think, you know, I don't know what the sort of prevailing outcome is there. For me personally, that probably would have been an attractive option to me. But uh, you're going to see some amount of this, of acceptance um, deferrals. And so what's going to be kind of weird about that, I talked about in the tweet storm earlier, is like when you're trying to fill a class and a college is accepting a certain number of students, they want, they want a freshman class of, call it a thousand students, because they know their number of faculty, staff, the size of the dorms, um, like all the facilities and dining hall, like they have kind of a carrying capacity. And so they basically know their acceptance rate. And they sort of multiply that, the number of offers we give out times acceptance rate, maybe minus some buffer so they can use the wait list. That number is going to be out of whack this year. Nobody knows what it's going to be. And then you're going to end up with a ton of people on a wait list probably. And then next year, what does that number end up being? So there's a lot of like little, and I'm only catching a glimpse of this, right? But I think there is a ton of minutia of college administration that is just being turned on its head right now for something so many of these schools just kind of operate the same way. There's a lot of just like well-established, well-understood, you can get a degree in college administration kind of processes that are now kind of having to be rethought. And what's going to happen? Um, is it just going to be, hey, pause and come back as usual or are a lot going to go out of business? I and mean, what happens with the endowments here? Walk us through a little bit how that works. Yeah. So one, one thing that's interesting about endowments, like one, there's been a lot of discussion about this recently, obviously with the... Uh, the PPP and say Harvard getting a $9 million uh, loan from the government and, you know, folks pointing out that their endowment is somewhere around 50 billion, 59 billion, maybe. So there's a, a lot of ways to think about this. I think that a school like Harvard, you know, they've, and, you know, I would certainly say Yale, that a lot of the huge schools have many billions of dollars in endowment. And there's a lot of nuance to that. So one is 
um, that's not the money they have to spend. The purpose of an endowment is this college should last forever. So it's invested, there's good investment managers. The person who manages the Yale endowment is one of the best endowment managers of any kind, nonprofit, college, anywhere. His returns are through the roof. And um, they draw far, far less than that. So a college of that size might draw one to two, three percent at the most of the endowment, and maybe 75% of the budget is covered by that. A much smaller school may flip that around and maybe only 25% of the budget is, is covered by the endowment. But then there's another interesting nuance, which is the endowment is actually multiple endowments. And if you graduate from a college and you gift money to your school, a lot of times folks will put a note on it that's like, you know, this is for the library or this is, you know, for the museum. Or a large donor might come in and say, I'm dropping $10 million and it's to build a new dorm with my name on it. And um, those endowments are earmarked and have to stay that way. So there's going to be a weird thing happening where when you see that Harvard is freezing pay or pay increases rather for their staff, a lot of folks are going to look at that and go like, well, the chapel's still open or like, you know, or the sports team is still operating or, you know, why is the, you know, schools where that's the primary offering. Um, I'm especially worried about some of the schools surviving. Um, and uh, sure, like maybe the people who didn't want those things to exist are going to get what they want. I think there's huge turmoil and everyone's kind of bracing for that impact right now. Talk more about how you see, you know, not just post-COVID, you know, a year from now, but five years from now, um, the college landscape really uh, shaping, uh, really evolving. And if you were, you mentioned you, you don't or, or can't invest in, in, in it right now, but let's say you were doing a dedicated fund solely to focus on the future hmm. of higher education, what would be your request for startups or, or what's interesting or where would you be looking? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And again, I should reiterate the hot take, the, uh, you know, reiterate the, the, uh, the disclaimer that this is my hot take and not representative of Olin. Um, so I'm, you know, I think that Olin has done a really good job of how do you make an engineering education much more real world and um, the outgoing president of Olin, Rick Miller, just kind of planted a bug in my ear about something that I can't stop thinking about, which is sort of what is that on the liberal arts side? And at first I was like, yeah, okay, that's not that interesting. But then as he started to describe it, there's so many folks that are really interested in like policy and politics and like philosophy and what can we learn from literature and um, how, what we learn about human nature through theater and like all these things. And there isn't a ton of like, let's apply that directly to the real world. And maybe that's okay. I mean, I think that higher education for a long time has been, let's learn for the joy of learning. Let's learn to enrich ourselves. And I do believe in that. But I also believe in, hey, we've got, you know, the people with BS degrees trying to solve problems in the world. And again, my hot take, lots of people will be mad at me for this. People with BA degrees telling us we're doing it wrong. And um, so I love to see kind of in the vein of that Mark Andreessen essay, and maybe I want to approach it with a little less snark and a little less, I guess, judgment is why not get these folks in a room, right? So can we solve different problems? Like let's say with COVID right in front of us, right? How do we figure out how, when we get out of social, when we get out of lockdown and into back into the world and businesses are slowly rolling open, folks that have jobs like ours are going to get to work from home and as long as we want, and we might stay safe for a very long time. And then there's all these other folks that are going to go out in the city and work with their hands and drive cars and drive trains and like do this critical work, nurses and, and doctors and 
firefighters and police officers and they're putting themselves in harm's way, are we going to end up in a situation where the second wave of, uh, of coronavirus is going to have this massive economic disparity and social, you know, class disparity? It seems pretty obvious that it will. So can folks like that get in a room and kind of think about problems analytically? And I'm not saying that they don't, and certainly this exists in lots of places, but I think it would be fair to say that most colleges are not oriented around doing that with undergraduate students in these disciplines, um, and certainly not tying them together with engineers. And on the other side, certainly engineers can benefit by spending a lot more time with folks like that. Um, and again, the, the traditional education model is departments and BAs, BAs being different from BSs and graduate programs being different from undergraduates. So there's this intentional siloing. So yeah, I mean, I think that that's a huge opportunity that can have a ton of value for the world. And certainly aligning what, you know, I think that there's so many different, there's so many different problems with the way liberal art, like, you know, the folks who are the most in debt from college and not able to reach that earning potential on, on the STEM side, often it's, it's much easier to find a high paying job on, you know, liberal arts style degrees. It can be a lot harder and it's only getting worse and worse. It's getting more expensive and the ability to find employment is harder. So we could benefit by a lot more alignment between what does the world need? What does industry need? What does the economy need? And what are we teaching and how do people get um, jobs that way? And so certainly on the STEM side, uh, online education, boot camps, stuff like that has, has done a lot to move more people into STEM. And I think one of the cool things about the bootcamp model is it really is aligning the demand of industry with the supply of people that want to do it. There is not as much activity on sort of what's the bootcamp for an economics major. What's a bootcamp for a philosophy major. Um, that's different from like, let's just watch webinars online. Totally. Who, who's doing something interesting there today? Like, do you think Lambda is fundamentally disruptive or, or, or who, who else yeah. is fundamentally disruptive today? Lambda is, is very, very, um, yeah, very, very cool model. I'm also really interested in Minerva schools, um, which is a little bit closer to a traditional model than Lambda school is. Um, and I'm assuming all your listeners know about Lambda school, so I almost kind of glossed over it. But Lambda is, they would not describe themselves as a boot camp, I imagine, because it is a little more immersive, longer term program. Um, but they're very, very focused on student outcomes. And they're very, very focused on social mobility. Then the big thing that everyone talks about with them is the income share agreement model. Uh, which basically makes it so you don't have to have money up front to join the program. You will graduate and then pay it back. And uh, lots of press about that, that in my opinion has been very unfair um, about, you know, ways that uh, that could land you in trouble if you're sort of pledging your future income to your college. But I don't know, in my mind as a, as an asset allocator myself, this is a little bit of an argument about the kind of an asset, a debt versus an ISA. The students themselves are very happy with the outcomes. Minerva schools, actually, this is another one where they're going to end up being disrupted because a big part of Minerva is they're taking students, smaller classes, and uh, they put them in cohorts. And they often will kind of go around the world to different locations. And they study together and build community. And they're working on all kinds of different things. And it really does span everything from machine learning to linguistics uh, or, you know, pure math or philosophy. 
So I think that they're, I think that they actually have a very interesting approach. They're very new. Uh, I'm not hundred percent sure how long, how old I want to say less than 10 years. So that's another funny thing about this, right? We talk about the long feedback cycles in venture capital. Talk about a long feedback cycle. When you take an 18 year old uh, through a four year program, they're 22 and then you want to track their lifelong outcome. Uh, you might have to wait about 80 years before you sort of know, or maybe let's say 40, 50 years till they retire. So yeah, it's always, uh, I think that's one, let's say design or engineering challenge of trying to build a new educational institution is like, what's your feedback cycle in terms of being tied to outcomes? Yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on what we're doing at, at on deck. It's so on deck is sort of a, you know, for the audience that may not know is a sort of. Stanford MBA for founders or, or trying to be like that. You know, this year we're going to have a thousand people who've paid us, uh, you know, a, a, around a thousand dollars. So we'll be sort of a million dollars a year. Um, and uh, people are having a, a, a great experience uh, so far. It's mostly people who, you know, who either haven't left their company or just started to leave their company. And over time we'll move to sort of an ISA model. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how far we could sort of take this idea, you know, Stanford MBA for founders, maybe it, maybe it's also for under, undergraduates who say, hey, I, I don't want to go to Duke or whatever, you know, pay quarter million dollars to be, a, mm-hmm. you know, to eventually be an entrepreneur. I'd rather pay 100x that or 10x less that and uh, use the rest of the money to you know, in, in, invest in a business, in, in my business. Like, what, what would you be doing if, if you were on deck or what questions would, would you would you be asking? Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think, I, you know, I didn't even mention that in the previous answer, but I think disrupting the MBA, there's like some clear opportunity there. Almost even just redefining the MBA as what it originally was and has gotten away from would be interesting, which originally the MBA was explicitly, let's turn engineers into people that can run businesses. It has gotten away from that. And there, there are a lot of programs that, you know, that, that is still their, uh, their goal, but a lot of MBA programs are fantastic at turning people into executives, right? Like you look at the a professional CEO that comes in and runs a multi-billion dollar brand company or something, they always have an MBA um, or almost always. Um, But you look at founders and MBA programs have not done a great job of even say startup founders and certainly uh, startup founders that eventually do grow and being become the founding CEO post IPO of these billion dollar companies. So yeah, I mean, clearly there's an opportunity for teaching people how to start a business um, that's not tens of thousands of dollars and almost explicitly about building network and signaling. Um, it's more tactical and more, let's say, I mean, it can, it could still be about building relationships, but a little more relevant to, to what you're doing, I suppose. I, I, you know, and I think one thing that you guys are certainly providing that is super valuable for anyone trying to get into startups in any capacity as a founder or an employee or whatever is just sort of getting that network. Right. I think that folks, I mean, I've known you for a little while, Eric. I know that like part of part of what you're trying to do with your life in general is to sort of lower those barriers and try to make people more accessible to each other. Um, I think it's like one of the more rewarding things about venture capital is that you're kind of incentivized and you're given the space and time and ability to just sort of connect people. Go, oh, you're you're working on this. Uh, you're you're working on this. You guys should talk. Or you two, sorry, apologies. You two should talk. Um, you know, we kind of get made fun of for that sometimes like, oh, you're just, you know, a silly connector. But there is value in trying to reduce the exclusivity of networks um, and trying to kind of democratize them. Um, So, you know, I think to the extent that you can build this community online in this way, and how that's going to get easier and easier, I think 
both in terms of us getting used to having online communities and in terms of tools for building online communities improving. There's just so much more, like in my mind, social good to providing access to starting companies to people all over the country, all over the world, um, decentralizing Silicon Valley, so to speak. Yeah, it's not a place, it's a mindset. If college is a bundle, some combination of uh, education, network, and credentials, uh, mm-hmm. online education has uh, somewhat unbundled the, the, ed- the education part of it, combined yep. with sort of accountability. Uh, network, uh, you know, things like YC, hopefully on deck, are starting to to get at that, although you know Stanford or Harvard are still great places to go for there. And I, I think the last remaining part is the that we haven't really got started on as much is the credential. And I think that's mm-hmm. um, hard, hard to get at how do you think about the the future of of credential? And of course, there's sort of you know vertical based you know uh, imp, imp, you know there are dev boot camps, sales boot camps, you know growth boot camps, et cetera, for, for specific skill based credentialing. Uh, but there, there there isn't sort of like as broad and legible, but also legible credentialing of hey, this is a really impressive, well rounded person who you know went through a bunch of hoops <laughs> and uh, yeah. and succeeded and. The- you know, Bain or McKinsey can trust that or whoever, Google at scale. Uh, maybe maybe that's a false sort of premise and that we don't need to recreate that broad credential. I mean, we just, it's just all sort of micro or vertical based, skill based credentials. How, how do you think about the future of credentials? Yeah. I mean, I think there, to talk, I guess, all around the issue from different sides, like I do think there is some utility to credentialing in some sense, right? Um, just kind of the idea of like, okay, you took these classes, you, probably know these things. Let's interview further and find out more. Uh, there's certain areas where like, I suppose a hospital wouldn't really be super interested in interviewing someone for a medical doctor role if they haven't gotten a degree, um, you know, regardless of how uh, regulations around licenses and stuff worked. I think that would still be the case. But on the other hand, like I think we've it started to become exposed a little bit that higher education credentials are sometimes just signifiers of sort of where you come from and not necessarily what you've sort of been through and what you've learned. Um, and certainly I think that's one reason it's kind of amazing to see how big that story got around the fraud around SAT scores. It's just like one of the biggest stories of the last few years. And really that's all it was about was sort of cheating on credentials, but it did, I think really kind of pull the veil back and start making people think from an employer's perspective side. Like I think, certainly having been like CTO at startups and hiring managers at at startups and even like smaller public tech companies. um, It's, it's always a lazy way out to try to look at the credential. And I think when you kind of do unconscious bias training as part of a hiring process, one element you often talk about is like being aware of how you might bias yourself. When you see that Harvard logo on the resume, you might find yourself giving them the benefit of the doubt in a way that you wouldn't otherwise um, but honestly, it's kind of just a lazy way to hire people. Like some of the best people I've hired uh, didn't go to school or went to a school that I hadn't heard of um, or maybe didn't have a great reputation. And uh, forcing people to look a little more closely at the individual and to have just a good hiring process, have good interview questions that actually serve you finding the people that are a good fit for your company. It may have less to do with how quickly can you implement merge sort in C++ and more about are you going to be someone who's going to be successful at this company long-term? Um, and those, those two things might have minimal overlap. Um, so yeah, I, I do expect to some extent there's going to be a lot more skepticism of traditional credentialism from higher education. 
And uh, it's probably a good thing, as long as it doesn't go too far to the point that we're having people build airplanes that, you know, learned everything they know about aerospace from playing Kerbal Space Program. Um, but I don't expect that'll happen. Certainly. And um, let's talk more about the endowment for a second. What hap What does this mean for LP Capital? <laughs> because I'm a endowment supporter. <laughs> What, what does this mean there? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of endowments, investing in venture. So um, yeah, a few things. So I think college endowments are usually invested pretty conservatively because um, it is going to be much more about wealth preservation than growth. Like you, you can plan. If you take a look at your endowment, if you could just choose for it to stay static and say, just grow, you know, just track the market that's the investment strategy many, many schools probably most are doing. Um, so it's a good thing because a lot of schools there are, have been hedged really well and have lost, you know, less value than the S and P 500. Certainly they've lost some value. Um, so I think you see a few effects. One is you'll see a lot of stuff now about how, Hey, during a downturn is a great time to invest in venture capital. And so I think you'll see a lot of more sophisticated LPs, choosing that as an investment strategy. But I don't think colleges are going to sort of say, now's the time to add more risk. In fact, what might happen is, if you imagine the portfolio, the endowment itself has lost 10% of its value. And that's, you know, things marked to public, like things that are held in the public markets. If you think about how much, what percentage of the endowment their venture capital portfolio now represents, if it had moved from 3%, if it was at 3% and it's designed to be at 3%, maybe it's moved to 4 or 5% just because um, venture capital portfolio marks are slower um, to change. And so what you might see is a lot of endowments saying like, wow, we're over-indexed on venture now. So we don't necessarily want to get into a new fund. Or maybe in the worst case, they're going to say, hey, we actually aren't going to be in fund five of this fund that we've been in for four funds. But I think what you won't see is college endowments refusing the capital call. So I'm concerned about that for certain venture funds, like smaller seed stage funds, maybe or first time funds that are driven by, you know, you see, you see the rise of micro funds lately a lot uh, the last couple of years. I guess I would predict a, a little bit of a downturn in those. It seems that if you've raised a micro fund and, and most of your LPs are say like your friends in for 50 grand at a time or something, they might say, Hey, times are tough. Um, my partner lost their job. Uh, I might want out of the fund. Um, you're not going to see any colleges doing that because they're long-term and you know, every college wants to live forever. So they don't want to damage their reputation in venture. Um, so I don't think you'll see it go that far. You know, a lot of complaints about the uh, higher education system has been around uh, debt and the you know, inability to pay that off, but it's been hard to compete because it's um, or, or inability, you can't even forgive those, those loans, but it's been hard to compete because you can't compete with, um, you know, the government in some sense. Uh, and that's <laughs> why in some sense, I, I think also ISAs have been hard. Talk a little bit about financing, how, how debt works for, for student loans, how student loans work, mm. and uh, whether we should be excited about uh, ISAs or other alternatives. Yeah. Um, well, I think clearly the, like, you can look at all these graphs, they all say the same thing that the cost of college is just going up and up and up. And the, it used to be the case that getting a job, uh, getting a great job was much easier by having a college degree. And to some extent, it almost didn't matter what it was in, just sort of having that stamp of approval. Um, weirdly, 
I think we have, it is, it's definitely been a trend over hundreds of years of higher education, that higher education is getting more and more accessible. And again, certainly it is not perfect or anywhere near perfect, but it's a world of difference away from say when Harvard was founded and it was a place for the elite of the elite uh, to study, you know, religious uh, related education. And what you've seen is, is kind of a vic- like more and more people being in it has simply made the supply of people with bachelor's degrees go up and up. It's no longer a guarantee for a job. I think that's kind of like no secret. So then it becomes like very difficult to pay off the loans that, that you've made. And it's the one loan you can't declare bankruptcy and get out of. So student debt is, is pretty insane. Although I think I was looking this up recently. I think about a million Americans have defaulted on their student debt. That's obviously especially tough now. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do think that there's going to be a little bit more skepticism around like, should I take out a big loan and go get a degree in something that isn't going to pay me money? Like certainly if you're wealthy, that's like the idea of just going to college to learn and have a great experience and meet people, maybe meet your life, lifelong friends and partners. Like that's great you need to be in the financial position to do that because you're not going to be able to just sort of repay it in the way that you maybe could have 50 years ago. Um, so yeah, I don't know. To some extent, that's a bubble. I'm also really partial to this argument called the car- the cost disease, um, which again, I guess is not really universally accepted. And I'm also not an econ PhD, so who cares what my opinion is? But the argument essentially is that there's no solution to this problem because the cost disease argument essentially says there are lots and lots of things in our world that technology and scale have made cheaper on sort of a per unit basis. Um, There's a lot of negative things people say about global agriculture, industrialized farming. Uh, One thing that it's good at is lowering prices because of the massive scale and the technology that's gone in. And maybe at some cost to say local farming or food quality, some people might argue. But in any case, um, as lots and lots of things get cheaper and cheaper for people, globalization, making tech, making hardware cheaper, right? Your flat screen television costs you a hundred bucks. The wallet share that services that cannot scale goes up. So getting a massage, getting a manicure, uh, going to college, seeing a doctor, anything that scales linearly with people is essentially increasing in value in, increasing in cost um, as a percentage of your wallet share. So yeah, so I don't know. I'm pretty doom and bloom about the state of uh, the state of this. Um, something's got to change, and I think like so many things with COVID, it may not be that COVID is the reason and like that that this changes, but it may just sort of accelerate it. I think if someone ends up paying thirty thousand dollars to get a bunch of webinars about and a reading list of Shakespeare, they're gonna wonder like, couldn't I have gone to the library? Um, and done a reading group with my friends. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. I mean, certainly there, you know, my grandmother was a Shakespeare scholar, so I can't, I shouldn't knock this too hard. <laughs> There's a lot of value, especially in something like that to talking to people that are real experts, but, uh, is it worth $30,000? I don't know. Maybe if you're rich already. <laughs> so uh, speaking of, you, you had a line in your, uh, tweet storm about, uh, the non-technical disciplines, the world needs ethics, history, policy, liberal arts. But the way they're taught, and sorry, the enrollment sizes are out of whack with the size and nature of demand. Zero colleges are innovating on this and feuding those startups. What, what can be done here? Yeah, I was trying to allude to that earlier. I mean, I think that, well, here's, here's a specific, I'm like 
completely stealing this from a single conversation I had. Uh, so, uh, so I have to credit him. Um, so Rick Miller, who's the outgoing president of Olin College, was, I, I don't know how many other people he's talked to about this, but he's been kind of thinking about what's he doing now that he's retiring as president. And one thing he's been thinking about is, what if you, let's take ethics, what if you studied ethics and you do all the typical ethics curricula, right? You're learning all the different schools of ethical thought throughout the many centuries that it's been studied, but you're also building like a portfolio uh, approach in a sense where maybe you find a real problem that you want to try to apply ethical thinking to, and you're probably going to have to work with people from other disciplines to actually make an impact. Um, so let's say like I don't know, access to water in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so you may have to work with civil engineers and you know all kinds of stuff. So you build this portfolio of like project application of what you're doing and do this like 12 times um, in the same way that someone who's like studying computer science may end up graduating with a bunch of projects that they can show or someone that's studying graphic design um, can graduate with a design portfolio. Isn't that going to be more attractive to the market? Would a civil engineering firm be more likely to try to hire you because they can look and go, oh, wow, like you've actually made a ton of impact in these different areas. So it is kind of like applying an engineer's mindset to liberal arts education. And so a lot of people will just, I think, be allergic to that idea. But I'm also just really partial to the idea that there's so many different ways to learn and letting people choose what way they want to learn. Some people can learn the classic thing, right, is auditory, visual, manual, whatever. My mom is actually a special education teacher that teaches kids how to read, um, particularly older ones who've been illiterate for a long time. And there's a very specific technique that works really well. It doesn't work for anyone else. Like it, it would be a waste of your time. But different problems having different styles that are good at solving them and different people being attracted to different styles of education. I think that this random idea that I've literally thought about for three days, it'd be super interesting to see someone actually try that and see if that actually worked better for certain kinds of people, certain kinds of learners. And if the market were more appreciative of it. Do you, why, why did uh, college itself get so expensive You were talking about cost disease earlier, but specifically, why did they spend so much money on the facilities and stuff like that? (laughs) Like all these amenities that silly now in COVID, but even before COVID seemed silly. Like, is that really what what students wanted? Were they really listening to their customers there? Like, why? Yeah. Well, I I think that some of the, I mean, certainly this is not the thing that explains the whole trend, but. Sometimes when you see a ridiculous building on a campus, it's the thing I mentioned earlier where some alum is like, I really want my name to be on that college campus for the rest of time. So I'm going to build a dorm. And like, this is a classic thing when you talk to college administrators, they're like, oh my God, this person wants to donate so much money. We can't say no, but it is the most useless thing. And we could not convince them to put the money into the general pool for unrestricted funds because of their essentially ego. Um, um, that's not, that's not going to be like the number one cause, but it certainly doesn't help things. Yeah. I think that, I think that cost disease is definitely a huge part of it. I think just the willingness to pay, right? The idea that if you're of a certain social class, you kind of need to go to a certain kind of school to meet other people that are also of your social class. That is not something that was invented recently. And, you know, that's, yeah, too to a large extent, what certain colleges have always existed to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, those folks are going to be price insensitive. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's, I guess I just keep coming back to various forms of the cost disease. If there are more, there are also just more and more people wanting to 
go to school as traditionally it had been something that opened a lot of doors for you. And and it still does open a lot of doors for you. Um, but then it's just harder and harder to scale the college. Um, especially if you want to, if they want to keep what they perceive as their quality bar. You know, the, the cynical take that I've heard is that colleges are really a um, tax sheltered hedge fund and that the, <laughs> the school itself is really a, um, you know, sort of a subsidy for the main business, which is the, the endowment business. Um, and that Harvard, you know, when I said to Naval, Naval, it was like Harvard would actually be better off, you know, going to 400 students instead of, you know, seven, that, like shrinking it way more, give you know, uh, qual- you know, quality way up and just, you know, tripling down on the, on the endowment. How do you respond to that uh, critique? And I guess more, more broadly, should governments be, you know, should they have tax sheltering and should governments be um, sort of like financially supporting these institutions? Yeah, I actually, I had a tweet a while back where I was like, I was like, higher education is basically a, um, uh, it's an endowment. Actually, I named the school. I was like, this particular school is essentially an endowment that happens to use its management fee, or it's a VC, it's a, um, is a hedge fund, happens to use its management fee to train its future LPs. Um, so it's kind of, I had a, a good friend who was in academia reply like, no, stop. It's, it's kind of unfair because, you know, it's, it, again, it's not like, um, people are, it's, they tend to not be for profit. Although on the other hand, you know, certainly the top paid college administrators and certainly the endowment managers make millions of dollars. Um, but the endowment manager of, again, the best performing endowment at Yale could make way more money on wall street, especially given his track record. Um, but still they make millions of dollars. Um, uh, so I, I think maybe there's some truth to that snark. Should, um, government pay more for college? Like, absolutely. I mean, I think we're so underinvested in education at all levels, um, all over our society. It's, it's shameful. Uh, one of my good friends, Lori Voss, who's the, uh, who was the founder CTO of NPM. He's from Trinidad and he sent, he tweeted a video the other day the president of Trinidad and Tobago or prime minister maybe, but the, the um, talked about and threw a little bit of shade at Donald Trump, but talked about how the islands were ready. Um, and he has been listening exclusively to doctors and scientists. Um, and he said, this is the culmination of us investing in our own people, investing in our education. We have experts here. Um, and uh, God like gave me chills, even just repeating it. It's like, why are we not doing this? I mean, obviously we do invest some in, in education um, all over, but I, I would say not, <clears throat> not nearly enough. Um, certainly to the point that uh, I would think even more so with like K through 12, why are teachers paid so little? Like, especially now, everyone who has kids, I'm not someone with kids, but everyone who has kids that I know is like, oh my God, this is terrible. Like spending, I love my kids, but I can't spend this much time with them. I'm like, yeah, go thank your third grade teacher when you when, when school opens up. This is what my mom does for a living. And, <laughs> and God, she makes, you know, uh, not as much as a software engineer, which is kind of ridiculous. So uh, yeah, certainly I think it's, I guess I would go so far as to say it's a disgrace how little we um, prioritize education relative to how important it is. Yeah, and I, I think there's the, the, the more nuanced question of how much should government uh, be supporting incumbents versus encouraging upstarts. Um, and I believe in the case yeah. against education, um, they were saying that they should get, uh, Brian Kaplan was saying they should get out the business of 
sort of get uh, of, of these sort of interest-free loans or just the, the way that they do the loans. I wasn't sure exactly mm. of, of the argument. So you said that you're aware of it. What are your thoughts there? Or because more broadly, like favoring incumbents versus favoring upstart? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's an, int- I mean, there's certainly an interesting economic argument, obviously, about like, if you're providing interest-free loans, like what are you sort of doing to the economy at large um, and sort of having like the government underwrite these things? That's, I, I guess I would say I'm not quite a deep thinker on that issue. But um, uh, yeah, so in terms of like, favoring upstarts and large institutions. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess in like a perfect world with a lot of capital behind this problem, you might kind of want to do both. I think like one thing, um, again, there's so few sort of startups in education, so I have to kind of keep coming back to Olin. But one thing Olin talks about a lot is uh, kind of the difference between the college and the mission. So on one hand, we're always wanting to innovate and we're always trying new things. On the other hand, kids are going there to get an education. So if you kind of like, figure out this interesting way to teach thermodynamics. And then you go, cool, we've taught this, like we've figured out this really cool thing. And now the professor that came up with that is onto their next experiment. Um, and you're like, wait, we built that thermodynamics class for what reason? Like, shouldn't we all be taking it now? Um, so you kind of do need an investment in both. So I think there's, you know, like the, some of the public universities that I really respect, I'm from Florida. I think, you know, University of Florida has done a fantastic job with research and with educating tens of thousands of people with all kinds of backgrounds. Again, not quite good enough, um, but getting there. Um, City College of New York, which is where actually Olin's incoming president is coming from. Like one thing that's, re- that's really impressed me about the CUNY and SUNY systems is, um, to, here's an example, when you were talking earlier about acceptance rates and sizes of school, like those, those schools have very high acceptance rates and they think that's a good thing. And I think it's a good thing they're trying to provide opportunity to people. For, it's a very community focused college. It's all about folks that live in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens. Um, and what are the other ones? Um, and <laughs> um, Staten Island in the Bronx um, that uh, they want to provide access to the community. So, yeah, I mean, I do think that there's uh, a good case for both. You know, I think that some people might argue that the government's not super great at, startup style ideas, you know, kind of disruptive innovation, or at least certainly they haven't been recently. So at the moment, I mean, I guess I would say that a lot of the innovation, I I think, I think probably most people would agree, like a lot of the innovation that you're seeing, that's really deep, like first principles thinking innovation in education is happening in the private sector. That's, um, you know, certainly, um, if you look at the people that started in online learning really early and have done a great job, lots of private schools, if you look at Lambda School and what you're doing it on deck. Um, and, you know, certainly Olin, Minerva, um, think about like the Claremont colleges have done a really great job of building kind of a new consortium model, you know, new in the sense of college, meaning less than 100 years old. Um, Cooper Union, uh, all private. Sorry about that. Uh, the, um, my guest today has been Lee Edwards of Root. Uh, Lee, uh, for people who want to learn more, uh, wh- where might you point them? Obviously, follow you on, t- on Twitter and uh, anything else you want to plug? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I should say that. Yeah, so Root Insurance is a seed stage firm. We're focused on what we call hard tech. Um, so there's four of us. We're all engineers and we're all still, you know, very much practicing, at least as hobbyists. Um, so I, I focus in what I call hard software. So I'm looking at AI, ML, developer tools, anything that's difficult to build in software. Chrissy used to run, um, uh, she she ran big parts of hardware at Square and at Apple on the Apple Watch. 
and uh, iPod Touch, iPod Nano. So she does a lot of electrical engineering, consumer products, supply chain. Kane does a lot of industrial automation, uh, old industry. He's sort of walking howstuffworks.com. So we're interested in all kinds of that stuff and never too early. We talk to folks like before they've quit their previous jobs and they're thinking about new startups. Um, so Lee at root.vc. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we're doing pre-seed seed, post-seed, say like million dollar checks on average, but certainly higher or lower um, as we're all trying to figure out this crazy new environment. <laughs> um, and uh, what was the last part there? You said, oh, yes. Yes, yeah. So at at Terran K, T-E-R-R-O-N-K. And my blog is Lee.af. Awesome. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. It's been another great yeah, episode. Thanks so much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.